what separates me possibly from animals, I think, is that I have a capacity to self-reflect. I have a capacity to be abstract. I have a capacity to sit on the moon and look back down on all of us and know it. And to be curious, to ask deep questions, to be cognitive, to be highly cognitive, asking deep questions and to take responsibility to do something. Vernon Collis tenaciously questions how we see and do things as architects and engineers. Through a fierce and thorough inquiry of his own views and those of the building industry, he has developed an integrated design consultancy that specializes in resource-efficient and sustainable design for developing countries. His practice works on projects throughout Africa, addressing some of the biggest challenges of our time. Resource depletion, the strong divide between the rich and the poor, and reversing the growth of cities. He does this by meeting the needs not only of the client, but also the local community, the local economy, ecology, and the planet as a whole. He believes that by asking deep questions, taking responsibility, and doing something about it, we can live, design, and build with purpose. I speak with Vernon to hear his inside story. I'm Keith Struthers, and this is Natural School. Vernon, how well did the university prepare you for a career in engineering? I think the, the important step is when I graduated as a civil engineer, I felt naked in the sense that the education of civil engineering is very abstract. Okay. There was no, there's no history. Very little of the theory taught is positioned in the work context. You're not really uh, engaged with the industry in, compared to, say, architecture. And the emphasis is on solving problems. I would say it's more qualification than in education. You, you don't have any position to argue what an engineer is or engage in any sort of debate in, in society or to position yourself as an engineer in any social realm. That's absent. So when I started working, I had no ground under me. So, so I, started, I started reading. For the first time, I could set up a dialogue with history, with engineers and who they were and how they were thinking and how their thinking evolved. Also, I liked the physicality, I liked the beauty of what was going on, and that wasn't important at all. There was no aesthetics raised or discussed ever in engineering. That, was, and that made me um, question that. And then I looked at the older engineers where aesthetics was the norm, was part of the design process. The fact that this was absent and not important bothered me a lot. And I immediately was drawn to the architectural process. And I was very inspired by their, their, um, their design process, the way they were thinking about things, and the human side, the importance of how this building is going to present itself, what it's going to do, and the aesthetics of it, and, and what it can uh, contribute to humans. So rather than just being a part that does an analysis of a column or a beam or a slab, mm. you wanted to be part of much more of the whole expression, as it were. I wanted to be part of the expression and to express myself. Later on, when you returned to university as a part-time lecturer, you were teaching both the engineers and the architects independently. Then you gave them both the same project without them knowing. Why did you do this? Well, I was... At that time, I was designing as an engineer and designing as an architect. And, and I felt that I was in these two camps. And I was trying to reconcile the differences between these two professions and, and the friction 
that existed between engineers and architects. And, and, I, and I witnessed my firsthand the inefficiency that can develop between the two. Imagine if I brought these two people together during um, the undergraduate uh, period, because these two schools were 100 meters from each other, and they never, they didn't share anything. And they knew nothing of each other's process. What was, what was shocking to me was that when the architects criticized the engineers and vice versa, then I'd ask each party, how do you understand an, an engineer thinks or the architect thinks and what is their de design process? And neither of them could ever give an answer and actually didn't know. And yet they were separate themselves from the other profession or looked down upon them. That's what drove my decision to give them each the exact same project and see what they came up with and bring them together to share their solutions. What emerged when you brought these two groups together? Because on the one hand, you've got the engineers with their aspiration towards scientific objectivity and optimum efficiency in design. And then on the other hand, you've got the architects with a more subjective, artistic approach. Well, it was, there was a lot of joy going on. The architects went straight to precedent. They went straight to history. They went to the library. They looked at their building or their, their structure that they needed to design. And they had to look at how they were designed in the past and any good examples. And they developed very beautiful drawings and, and some solutions which were good. The engineers didn't go to precedent at all. They didn't go to a library. They went to first principles and they designed their structure on what they understood from the structures they had been taught. Five or 10% of the engineers came up with very innovative solutions. The rest just had this, all the solutions looked the same without, with very little thinking left or right. So they went to what they were taught. Not a lot of imagination. The architects came up with, were more creative, but, but their solutions weren't as way out as the four engineers in terms of creativity. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Because they, they stayed within what they had seen before. And what was the outcome of that? Well, there was, the first thing was lots of surprise. The architects were very surprised to say that these engineers are actually people like us and they could laugh and joke and, and they were very curious in their, and respectful of their understanding of the, of, the, of the first principles. And the engineers were very impressed with what the architects had come up with because many of the architect solutions were better than the engineering solutions. And they couldn't believe how beautiful their building, their drawings were and how their solutions were so well considered. So there was a general, uh, an, up, an increase of respect of both and one of seeing the humanity in both. And how was that for you? When it's all happening, how were you feeling? Well, I was excited to see the two halves of myself that were struggling to see it come in played out in front of me and um, to see that what I believed was to bring these um, the students together earlier could be a way of addressing the schism in the industry. It could be a path, yeah. that it is possible. So architects and engineers are viewing the world through their own particular lens mm. and they justify and qualify themselves with their own particular language. To qualify and back up the fee that they may be charging or yes. their value system. Yes. And that's the only lens they can see through. Yes. I mean, my own experience was I was brought up in a very strong Catholic environment, which I deconstructed to, to liberate myself. And that's the way I saw the world when I was growing up. It took a long time to take that apart, to realize that wasn't the view, it was, it was a view. Yeah. Only then could I understand the dipole that exists between architects and engineers, that it is just a view. And unless you can step away and see that there are other views, you never know there's another view.
And I find many professions are like that with only one view. You've initiated many innovative projects, embodying your thinking around sustainability and appropriate technology. And in particular, you were involved in the Green Shops project, which was building a rural bank for a large corporate. What was their approach and what did you propose? The immediate response was to do a bank that would be same as one in all the other major city centres and take one of those designs and put it there. That's, I mean, that would be normal. That's what most people would think. But in this one, we flipped it. There, were, there was a new site available and there was this existing old site to say, isn't it more appropriate to do a building that relates to the, the, the local population in a way that celebrates themselves, that has contextual relevance to the way they live, that is an investigation of the way they make things. And imagine if a corporate uh, did something with an appropriate technology of the area made by the people using local materials, celebrating their technologies. So could you give us some examples of how? The idea was to use the existing old buildings, which was an old, um, the old courthouse, and have a massive labor input by recycling the exist all the bricks from the existing building and using all the clay from the excavations to make new buildings and from the local timber, processing the local timber, designing in a way that is in the local culture. And that's what was done. To not bring in the modern materials, but using that engineering and material understanding to improve the local technologies, to take them up a couple of notches so they can be robust for buildings of that scale. What that took was something different in the process. Our normal process is to design something in an office and look to a supplier to supply all the materials. What this one was, it took another layer of process to say what is already there that can be used. It did take more input and it does require the, the, a knowledgeable engineer to understand so the materials. a knowledgeable engineer is going to site and assessing all the local conditions, yes. all the local materials and saying how can we adapt our design to accommodate using these materials and this yes. level of skill? Or how to, one step back, is to establish what the palette of materials are first, map those out. Map out all the local technologies and the local skills. Once you've understood the anatomy of the area and the climate and what it has to offer and who's going to inhabit the building and who's going to use the building, put all those layers, layers on top of each other. Then you start designing. So basically, you're reversing the whole process. You're, you're saying instead of designing, then looking for materials, you're saying look for the materials, look at the context, look at everything that's related to that. Yes. As you describe, the, the palette of materials, the entire anatomy of that context. Yes. And base your design on that as part of your brief. Then you have an, I have another brief. Is what's my responsibility to the local people? to the country and to the globe, if I can. So yeah. to the local people was, if I design something that the local people can build, then I can affect the economy locally. Yeah. And the mines, that was quite a big one. So if, therefore, I, as, because as an architect, I've, I have a social position. I'm, I'm needing to support um, fairness in society. So if, if the clients, in, in this particular case, wanted a building that was to be done from a major center, and all the, build, the, the materials would have to be imported. And because those buildings are much more complex to put together, so would the labor have to be imported generally, the, the, art, the artisans. 
means that when the building's finished, most of the money has gone back, has, to, the has gone back to the city. So the cities get bigger and the rural space yes, exactly. small and impoverished. How can I make the local people feel proud about their technology, which was in this case for the main chief's building was Wattle and Daub, so that they can go to their homes and build with Wattle and Daub instead of trying to build these metal buildings which they think are one up on Wattle and Daub. They're actually one down in a long way. Second of all, how can they get trained to work with their local materials in a different way to improve their lot? So they can have a usable skill. And how can the money stay there so that whatever happens stays in the community too? So the reverse is happening in our world. Uh, cities go to the rural areas and developed countries go to developing countries or underdeveloped countries. There's this flow. But the money never stays where it belongs. So throughout Africa, you're getting the developed countries coming through all these banks and they come to fund projects. And I worked on the, on the Tsunami Recovery Project. They come and fund projects, but it comes with a condition. The condition is, we'll fund that project provided you buy all those materials from our country. So what happens on a small scale from a city to rural area is happening from a big first world nation or developed nation to a developing nation. Hence, Africa can't transform. In China's involvement on the mines is that they bring their own people and all their own materials to mine. And they don't arrive with possibly the concept and, and use the local to transform. Take note guys, what Vernon's talking about is really important. Informal city development is growing exponentially, squatter camps, favelas. And as architects we often talk about how to design the ideal new city, but can we not also be talking about how to build the new rural community? Would you say that this is a movement that could increase? I don't know. Uh, why I'd like to see it increase is because if the local community built that building and they have pride about their involvement and that it's of their culture, then they will look after it. Now, that bank that's got an automatic teller is the only bank that hasn't been robbed in the Eastern Cape. That says a lot. Throughout, the developed world imposes undeveloped areas with their value system they are, and they use it by doing their architecture and the way they build to think that what they offer is better than what the locals can do and I think that's very incorrect very often and it sets up it sets up a gradient of a difference and, 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 and a lot of alien architecture and alien buildings and alien technologies in areas where they don't understand so how can you engage with it respect it look after it they just see it as an imposition. It's like almost another, it's, it's a colonization in a way of ideas. What I find interesting, Vernon, is at the beginning you spoke about these architects and engineers in the classroom together, mm. recognizing that we each people, yes. we're individuals, we're humans, we laugh, we joke, we have similar values in certain ways. Yeah. And here with this Green Shops project, the sense that I get, it's around the people. Mm. And if people value their building enough, they're not going to steal from it. That there's almost like a moral quality that comes in. Great. And a caring. Yes. It doesn't, it's, not been, it's not seen as a disposable object. So architecture is not just about the building, it's actually about the human relationships. I'm absolutely committed and interested in the process of making. It's who makes it, how is it made, 
How are the local people involved in making it? Changes. Anything. In the same way, how different it is when you, have a, when you go out for a meal or you cook a meal yourself for somebody? What's the relationship? That, I think, is essential. At the moment, we're looking at buildings uh, going up that are basically as close to machines as we can ever get. When you walk past them, there's no human quality to it. Because my study of architecture is, is my root cause is, is, is how do we feel when we're in the building? And that's what I've been monitoring all my time as an architect. Whenever I go anywhere, whenever I, go, I always ask myself the question, how do I feel moving from outside through the spaces in those rooms if I'm in a library, does it speak to me of a library that I want to sit down and read and reflect and study? If I'm in a place of a spiritual place, does it bring out my spirituality? If I go into um, a kitchen, does it bring out a relationship to food and cooking? In a lounge, is it a place about communion and, and uh, sharing? Is a bedroom a place of rest? Are we designing our buildings according to our various and complex emotional levels? We really are living in a world of crisp, hard-edged structures. What's your view on this? Uh, and, I th and, and the perfection of getting surfaces that are so perfect, edges that are so perfect. And I'm wondering what that's all about. And I'm wondering if that's through an insecurity of our own imperfection. Mm -hmm. Is trying to design our imperfection out by making such cold, hard buildings, which, if you ask children, don't like. They don't like them. And ask old folk, they hate them. Because those two ranges are much more honest about their feelings than the, than, than the middle bunch who are overwhelmed by aspiration and aren't confused about who they are. Vernon, you've been involved in quite a lot of self-reflective process throughout your life. Could you maybe talk a little bit about that and how that's affected your attitude to your work and your personal life? I suppose I, I lived this. The reflection only really started about 1995. And I woke up to think that I can be the author of my life. I'm not authored. And up to that point, I was looking outward to be authored. If you think about it, is I was brought up in a strong Catholic family with a father who had a British rigor and a fear of and a respect of authority to be different, to be critical, to challenge authority, even to have an opinion wasn't part of the upbringing. And that being an individual with anything different was being um, an anarchist. Yeah. I think... So you started waking up to the fact that, hold on a second, I'm not actually sourcing from within myself. Yes. And there's a part of me that actually doesn't have the full voice that I would like it to have. Yeah, because I wanted to have an opinion, not from a reactive perspective, but opinion from an expressive perspective, and I want to contribute, to be part yeah. of, not to follow only, and not to follow blindly. And I noticed that I was struggling to make uh, decisions, on, on deep decisions, and to understand the world. And I think I was a little naive for many years. If you're not brought up with a critical perspective. You live a somnambulistic life for yes, a long time. Yes, yeah, a bit of sleep. And you don't question things, and what you don't question most is the source of my own emotions. And the, I wanted to get inside and understand what was going on me in myself and so that I could understand the world around me. I didn't have a platform for which I could understand the world around me because I was conditioned into a way of thinking. We all are. And I had to unpack all of that to try and see it. I'm still busy doing it. And it took many years to start to see myself and, and be okay with difference, for example. To be okay with difference and differences within myself. 
and to unpack all the stories I've been told that we were all told in, our, in, the, in the South Africa at the time, in the way the world worked, and the way we were ushered into ways of thinking. And to unpack that was a tough process. Doing architecture really helped. It really was very liberating to inhabit another workspace to see a completely different view, to spend time with people that had a completely different perspective to engineers was, was very liberating. And to leave Catholicism was a very, very tough, long process because it was so deep in me. Because that Catholicism lives not only in a religious aspect, it lives in a, in a way of thinking and a way of seeing the world. And now you've got to reauthor all of that to actually look in a different way. So in terms of change, that's a major, almost mm. inside-out change, in yes. a way. It's a massive Or outside-in, in a way. Well, to get to a point to say, where I every night believed in God, and the God was looking after me, to get to a point where I go to bed, I want to do, as an experiment, get to a point where I go to sleep alone, yes. and trust that I go to sleep alone. Yeah. And not that it's putting myself at the center, but saying, I'm going to go to sleep, there's nobody looking after me. I don't have a dad substitute. All I want to know is I want to be comfortable with what I don't know. And that was a very difficult, long process. But, and then I got through that, and liberation started to happen, to say that um, I can reflect and make decisions on my own without feeling I've been watched or looked after or being judged. So there's a genuine sense of autonomy. And yes, independence. Yes, yes. And truth-telling. Yes. Maybe say something about what you mean by truth-telling. Well, part of the process was to be as honest and truthful as I could with myself. About what you're feeling, what you experience in yourself, who you think you are, who you think you're not. Yes. By digging um, down and seeing myself, what I've noticed, what I've come to experience, that there's two voices. With me. yourself. Yeah. And I think in a lot of people. Yeah, the, the, sure. It's my inner, deep inner voice that, that is part of me. And then all the collective other voice. And it may be the teacher or the bully at school or yes. the, the parent or, or the sibling. Who, which you internalize. Which you, I internalize. And then you need to start differentiating between what is it that you've really internalized that's not you and what is something else. What is something else. And the truth telling was... To say what that voice is, is, sometimes it comes as a feeling, not as a voice. Yes. And to, so you have to interpret. You're going to say, hang on, I've got a feeling. I can feel there's something tight happening across my chest. What's, what's happening there? Or you go into a meeting or you it's a, a meet with somebody or there's a tense, something comes up, and then you have a physical response to it yes. in the throat, behind my eyes. And I say, look, that's happened. Why? Yeah. There's a fear. There's an anger. There's a joy. Is an expression. Why does it feel trapped? Yeah. Because in it is that I wanted the whole thing was to untrap the trapped feelings. And to come to authenticity. To come to authenticity. To, to not feel all those limits. To liberate myself from my historical cage that we're all given. And Vernon, how has that affected your way of living? Well, I, I want to live with purpose. When you get more and more internal, you, you, you allow yourself to ask, well, what is it that I want to do? Then you say, in the context of the world, I want to do something where I'm satisfied, but which also benefits the world. 
and the people around me. So you start to find purpose. It's a real mining process, in a sense. Interesting that you come from Valcom, where there's all this mining process. And the gold's very hard to get it. Okay, exactly. That you, you're asking what you, what you think about it, but you've got to differentiate really honestly and inwardly, am what I think I'm thinking my voice or some other conditioned voice that I've internalized, and to be able to start distinguishing between those two. Feelings help. Yes. Feelings never lie. And what's happening in your body? In my body. Yeah. How I feel. What I did, I kept trying things. So I said, life can be an experiment. Mm. Try. The biggest challenge are relationships. Always. Of course. Because it's right there, mirrored for you. The first one is relationship with self and those two parts. Yeah. So if those can start to join, all time, the thing is just try. Get up in the morning, try again. As a simple example, how often do we go and we have an engagement with somebody or a meeting and you walk away thinking, I should have said this or why did I say that or I should have stopped that person, I didn't express this. Ideally, I'd want to get to a point where you can... You walk clean. You walk clean and you go and sleep at night without that thought on your head. And architecture and engineering turns that into the physical. Yes. Because it's the, one, the wonder of the profession is yes. that it's such... It's, it, the biggest physical manifestation on the earth comes out of those two professions. Yeah. And it's interesting that you spoke earlier of that when you go into a building or you're designing a building, it's a question of how do you feel in this place. Mm. Because somewhere there's a barometer that gives you a direct access to how it's affecting you that's not necessarily only a mental process. Exactly. And, and what have we lost in myself and as a, as a culture in, in how we do it now? Yeah. Those feelings. I mean, I went to Italy, I went to some of the hilltop towns, and I can say the last years, the happiest days I had were spending time in those places. And it's not for nostalgia, it's not for any of that, it's because those people knew how to design and build in context, and they knew how to do it for human feelings. They knew, they knew it, in fact, I don't even know if they're conscious, it was done consciously. It came out of them. It came out of them. Because that's their life, and that's what yeah. they were living and I think we haven't improved much on that. Yeah. In terms of, if I measure feelings, it's, it's, I don't think, it's very rare that I see a piece of modern architecture or modern urban spaces that have been designed with the same quality of what happened then. Yes. And what are you aspiring to in terms of your own work? I think my, my main concern in my work is to do, to do buildings or work that responds to the, the, I think, our biggest threats at the moment are climate change, resource depletion, and the strong division between rich and poor. And I think that buildings can address that difference. It can go a long way to addressing that. And that's not, in, so in other words, the process is important as well as the beautiful aesthetics. Yeah. So there's the client's brief that I believe, and what's my brief from the planet if it could have a brief? Every time an architect or an engineer starts a project, he sets off in a chain reaction a whole local, a whole economy. And how the architects and the engineers decide in the process of making can affect so many things and so many resources on the planet. Imagine these happening at every project around the world. That responsibility rests with them and they need to challenge and, and really reflect and look in the mirror and say, Who am supporting? I? 
And who are we supporting in this process? And at the moment, that I think it's problematic is that it's um, many of the architects and engineers really serve capital. They don't necessarily serve the full range of who possibly could be served. And that's disturbing. And in my own work, I've challenged it. So on the mine, you can make a decision. Do we import the buildings as pre-manufactured buildings from a factory it's where a few people put them together? Or do we use a massive local community to make the bricks and do something that's local that they own using the best of both, both technologies? Yeah. And I think throughout the world, we're going more towards mechanization, more to more, uh, much more to production line. There is a place for it in some areas, but I think to the exclusion of many, I think, it's, especially in the developing world, I don't think it's necessarily the right solutions. Vernon, in your life, with all your experiences, from self-reflection to engineering, to architecture, to traveling widely, to exploring widely outside worlds, inner landscapes, how would you describe what it is to be human? Yes, I think the first one to me is to be absolutely truthful with myself. To human is to be present, to trust myself, to trust the known and the unknown, and to be in this process. We don't know where it's going to go. And it may or may not pop out the other side. But to be with it is human. And to be of all my human experiences and explore and be curious about the entire process. What separates me possibly from animals, I think, is that I have a capacity to self-reflect. I have a capacity to be abstract. I have a capacity to sit on the moon and look back down on all of us and know it. And to be curious, to ask deep questions to be cognitive, to be highly cognitive, asking deep questions, and to take responsibility to do something. Um, and to express it, to not deny, to not to fall into self only, um, to enjoy communion, and to be positive and make a contribution with purpose. Thank you. That was fantastic. Thanks, Keith. Yeah. When I reflect on my interaction with Vernon, it's clear to me that his personal journey has included a gradual process of shifting from feeling answerable to an external authority to that of finding his own inner voice. It's the journey we all need to make at some point in our lives, and many times over, to find our own authenticity and originality. Vernon's particular journey took the form of being influenced as a child into believing true authority resided outside of himself. In response, he feels compelled to wrestle his way towards personal inner authority in every aspect of his life. This battle for his own conscience has given him the strength to covet the validity of diverse views and how these can be woven into the rich tapestry of life. As a result, he is bridging the schism between architects and engineers and also finding ways of giving credence to rural communities while finding appropriate and ethical ways of developing in the developing world.
So the question I like to leave you with is as simple to ask as it is difficult to answer. When are you living in your own light? And when are you passively living out the shadows of others? You can share this discussion or listen again at naturalschool.com. That's natural, S-C-O-O-L.com. Also, feel free to sign up for our bi-monthly email newsletter. Every two weeks, we send out inspired thoughts and reflections about design and architecture, as well as interviews with innovative designers from all around the world. You can sign up for our newsletter on our website, naturalschool.com. We are architects and facilitators who inspire innovative design professionals to find deeper meaning in their personal lives through their creative practice. This is a Natural School production. Thanks to our host Keith, our producer Shannon Flynn and Daniel Apple for original music. Our major funding partner is Natural Architecture, specialists in sculptural and sustainable architecture. Go to naturalarchitecture.co.za to find out more.